0: Credit card companies balk at adding a new merchant code for gun stores as Republican lawmakers push back on the idea. Plus, Ashley Labinsky on what she hopes to accomplish with the University of Wyoming's new Firearms Research Center. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the
1: devil's got no...
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Getowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter if you want to keep up to date on what's going on with guns in America. You can also buy a membership if you want to get exclusive access to most of our analysis pieces that give you deeper insight into those issues and also help support our reporting. We are a completely member-funded Publication, owned 100% by myself, and we are aiming to keep it that way. Independent and informed, sober and serious firearms reporting is what we go for. This week on the podcast, we are uh, going to be talking to a special guest, Ashley Levinsky from the University of Wyoming's Firearms Research Center, a co-founder. Welcome to the show, Ashley. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing really well, though I'm a little bit worried about the serious part of (laughs) your mission.
0: (laughs) Um, Could you you tell people just a little bit about yourself uh, who might not know who you are?
1: Yeah, um, so I am a firearms historian that focuses in museum studies. That's pretty serious. yeah, I guess so. But I don't know. I have fun with it. Um, I'm I'm most well known for the fact that I was the curator in charge of the Cody Firearms Museum, which mm. is one of the largest gun museums in the country. Yes. And I was there for about a decade. And during that time, we completely gutted and rebuilt the museum. So we were responsible for everything. Um, I was the project director, so I was responsible for uh, working with my team, everything from content to fundraising to actual project management work to some extent. And so we worked on that and that reopened in 2019. And since then, I've been consulting full-time, so I'm still a museum consultant. I work for museums that have firearms and related uh, collections, because there's not a lot of people in the museum field that have any specialty within that. And then I do some writing. Periodically, I produce and write TV shows. Uh, And then, you know, for the past, gosh, I think it's been two years, I've been working with a Second Amendment scholar, George Moxery, on the development of the University of Wyoming College of Law Firearms Research Center, which we got faculty approval on last summer, and we ran a press release uh, about it in January of this year.
0: Mm, yes, brand new program there. But uh, Cody Firearm Museum is also one of the most renowned museums in the country for uh, for guns, right? I Actually, I believe I was on. I haven't been there yet. I'd like to go and and check it out because I hear great things all the time about the displays there, but. Uh, and I actually was in one, uh, I believe, because you guys displayed the Time Magazine Guns in America
1: Yes, cover. and that's still there. <laughs>
0: yeah, so I guess I'm already there in... Uh, at least that was
1: <laughs> that was more controversial than I thought it was going to be. Really? Uh, yeah. So the Cody Fires Museum, we get about 200,000 people through the door every year because it's a part of a larger organization and we're on the East Gate of Yellowstone. And when we were doing our preliminary survey work, we actually learned that about half of our audience really didn't know anything about guns. Mm. So half of the audience are gun people or either collect or light guns or casually, you know, uh, target shoot, that kind of thing. And then half of the people identified as really having nothing to do with firearms, uh, maybe even had a fear of firearms. And so when we rebuilt the museum, we felt really strongly that we needed to speak to everyone, that this wasn't just to buy the collector for the collector museum. Mm. So when we were working on it, you know, we actually had a panel of people, everything from, you know, your gun aficionado, your guy who loves guns to people who hate guns. And so that was kind of we were trying to get that delicate balance and the time magazine mural you know was a pretty good balance right it was you know with 250 people something like that across Mm -hmm. the gun debate and it was pretty evenly split and to us that was like one of the first times we had seen something like that and so we had this big wall that we needed to do something with and so actually uh the curator now who was my assistant curator back then came in and was like hey we should consider this and so we put it up and it has been amazing for discussion, but I will say there are some gun guys that refuse to set foot in the museum because that mural is there. Oh, so interesting. you're a part of a Cody fires museum controversy.
0: <laughs> well, for those watching on YouTube, you can, uh, so I was on the cover of that magazine alongside, obviously those other 250 people, but uh, you know, on YouTube, you can see in the background here, a uh, copy of that, uh, that, that cover. And, um, uh, yeah, I thought the pro- that 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 issue was really great because it did bring together a lot of people from a lot of different points of view and didn't really try to editorialize much on any of them. It was mainly just sharing their stories. And you can there's even they have a website you can still go to that uh, where you can click on each individual person uh, and it's this sort of moving mural because it's a picture, but it's also a video. If you go to their Guns in America website on time magazine's uh website they and you can listen to interview recording with uh every single person who's on the cover and just they share their point of view and their understanding and i think that's fascinating and they had people from all you know all walks of life politicians i think steve scalise is on there if i remember uh gabby giffords uh you know all the way from you know competitive shooters to hunters to uh, just, just regular gun owners, and and then different kinds of gun control activists as well. So, I, I thought they, like you, that they did a pretty fantastic job of being fair to everyone. Yeah. So well, uh, and the other yeah. thing
1: that I thought was interesting with it is like it's not just one side are all the gun control people and one side were all the gun rights people. When you right. actually look at it, everyone's interspersed within the, the mural. So it was, uh, we, we love having it there. It's still there. Um, Danny says that, you know, every time someone complains about it, it's staying up six months longer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. They did a bunch of displays of that all around the country. They put giant versions of it up on buildings and stuff in New York city and uh, they had they had showings of it around, but I think Cody's the only one that has the permanent uh, display that's still ongoing with that, I believe. But- and
1: ours is just the image. We didn't uh, we didn't have the space where it's at. It's actually in our timeline of firearms history. Mm. Um, yeah. so we have it in there, and so we didn't have enough um, you know, depth. In order to do the projector screen for sure. it, so um, it's just kind of the, the the static image that you got on the cover of it. But it's I know it's it's very large. You don't have to go because it's, <laughs> it's it's a very big wall. <laughs> I will.
0: I, I have to go anyway. It's like, it seems like such a fascinating museum, and we'll talk more about uh, that part of what you do. I think later on in the show, but I wanted to get into starting off here. What's going on with the the Firearms Research Center because that's a new project. That uh, is is pretty interesting and pretty unique in the academic world, right? Yeah.
1: There have been um kind of there have been several firearms research centers that have popped up ar- around the country over the past few years. And this started kind of as an inspiration uh from George Moxery. I mean, he's written the case law books with several other academic scholars on firearms in the Second Amendment. And so I honestly can't remember how he and I got connected, but I know the first time we met was actually in Cody. And so, you know, we connected because George you know, focuses so much on law. Law and the and he hopes the research center will produce, you know, firearms lawyers, and that's not just Second Amendment litigators. That's everything within, you know, the understanding and study of firearms. And since I come from a much more historical perspective, a material culture perspective, we thought that, you know, our personalities and our expertise might balance things out because a lot of the research centers, uh, other research centers are very focused in either law or one subject matter. And so we figured, you know, this is something that might be housed in the College of Law, but we want it to be much bigger than that. And we want to encourage, uh, you know, historians, anthropologists, sociologists, education, uh, the education department, so that we can get the most holistic approach to understanding firearms in American culture. And we, you know, we're obviously at the beginning of that. So that's the lofty goal. Um, but we've got, you know, our two very different personalities trying to pull it all together. And so we've been doing some smaller scale things. Uh George has done some CLEs, continuing legal education. He did one on hunting and conservation last fall. We have a lecture coming up in April uh, from Nick Johnson, who specializes in um race. And firearms laws, um, and so we're doing some of these small things. We also do a home and away program with Duke, um, their Firearms Law Center. So oh, okay. you know, one year we host it, then they host it. So this year's our, you know, our turn. And so we we try to work with as many you know groups of people as possible. So we're starting to create the plan, so it's concrete. And George is actually teaching uh, a firearms and Second Amendment course uh, next fall. Well.
0: Oh. That's yeah. that's pretty interesting. So, uh, go go down the line with this. What what are some of the things you hope to do in addition to some of these uh, events that you've already got scheduled? What are the what are your your grand vision? The you know obviously you mentioned what you're hoping to accomplish. How are you hoping to accomplish that? What are some of the events you're trying to schedule down the line? Like what do you want to grow into?
1: My background has always been very much how do we apply this academic theory to real world scenarios? And so a lot of times when you look at the university structure, you know it feels very, you know, at a distance or um, kind of something that a lot of people don't feel like. Okay, well, how can I apply this directly to my conversations, my understanding, especially in, in terms of how you know political the gun debate can be? So we really want to see, you know, the practical application side of what we do as well as the cultivation of new scholars. And so the way that we're going about doing that and we will grow it is we're actually currently working on a website. We do have a. Website that's live now, um, firearmsresearchcenter.org, but it's going to grow. And one of the things that that will have is kind of a a, a tab for all of the scholarship we can aggregate. So, a lot of scholars, there are a lot of scholars around the country that do work, but they're siloed. So, we want to bring them all together and have a one-stop shop for people who are looking for firearms content from a range of different disciplines. And that will be something that, yes, of course, is accessible to scholars, but will also be um, accessible to lawyers, to students, to the media, to the public. So it's something that we want to be kind of an overall resource um, for anyone who wants to know more in a way that is not judgmental. You know, we're not couching it in, you know, here's our opinion of it. It's just here it is kind of thing. And then it will also have a repository of gun laws. Ultimately, we'd like it to have the actual um, copy of the gun laws, because I, I can't remember which case, but there was a judge recently who said, I don't want to just see your writing of the law. I want to see an actual you know PDF of the page. I believe that was you know, Benitez in,
0: in California. Um,
1: no, it was actually, Benitez wanted the spreadsheet. This was a yeah. different um, yeah. judge that okay. wants to see the, they don't want to just see the, the quote. They want to actually see the page or mm. the pages where the law is. So yeah, we're going to ultimately upload that.
0: Especially when you're dealing um, so, with these older laws, that can be really important oh, yeah. to see the actual written text of it there's cuz there's been several occasions uh, I remember there was a piece i think in politico that tried to to just des- to describe uh, one of the founding fathers as like a, a very open to gun restrictions and they cited a law that he had proposed in virginia and they got the re- the reading of the law incorrect it was uh, a regulation about uh, hunting on other people's property um and they had made it out to be a regulation about taking guns away from someone. And, um, uh, you know, and then I, I believe Duke has updated that they have a similar repository of historical laws, but it's mainly just quotes from it. And that can I've seen situations where uh, Costas Moros who's a gun rights lawyer out in California yeah. recently uh, had mentioned that one of their law, one of the excerpts from the laws was a bit. Off from what the actual law said itself, and so Duke updated to their credit uh, the the section on that that law. But it's you know the point is it's important to have the actual first documents right for these sorts of things, especially because in the post bruin landscape, it's so it's so very important to know exactly what the historical uh, regulations were in, when judging modern gun laws.
1: Yeah, and so for us, the website is something, I mean, obviously we will constantly grow, but it's something we're working on right now and we'll hope to have at least the preliminary information up in the next six weeks. Because there's so much going on right now in Second Amendment litigation and in dialogue around firearms. We want it to be, you know, not our, you know, down the road, five years from now plan, but here is something right now that you can go to that's a resource. So that's part of it. Um, and then there's also the fact that we want to ultimately be a place where if you want to study firearms, you have a place to go. You know, when I was in college, I had to get creative. I had to do independent studies. You know, you kind of have to get, uh, you know, really and what you want to focus in because you can't always study firearms and there's no program that says firearms history or even arms and armor. Um, the only thing that may be in existence that I'm unaware of would be art museums. You see that um, a lot more you know, readily accessible with art museums looking at firearms from an art perspective. Mm. But it's difficult to study the firearms. So the, the yeah. goal for me would be to have a research center where if you're someone that's like, okay, I want to study firearms specifically, then I'm going to go here and I can get a degree um you know that's down the road but I can get a degree that emphasizes firearms or I can come and study in the history department but then I also have the ability to take firearms related courses and not just I'm going to do an independent study where I do it on my own or I'm studying or I'm in a course about you know advertising after the civil war. And so now I'm going to do that course and then do the research on my own to make it firearms related. So be a place that's much more accessible um, to students, the future of scholars, because the reality is, is we need um, a lot broader of a base of firearm scholars. For so long, it's kind of been like, You've got your non-traditional scholars, uh, your gun collectors, your firearms researchers that don't have the traditional academic degrees, and those people often will produce amazing scholarship. You know, sometimes I feel like it's silly to say that some YouTube personalities have some of the best primary source scholarship that's out there right now, especially technically speaking. So you get this yeah, really good like scholarship that can come out of that. Was <laughs> that Ian McCollum? And yes. C and Arsenal is mm-hmm. another really good one. Um, the Armorer's Bench. Is that Ian on and the show. So- couple times. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing what they put out there. But it is. when you have the non-traditional scholarship, it's sometimes difficult to figure out what's good and what's not. So you kind of have to be around the field enough to know what the vetting system is for that. So you don't have your traditional peer review that you'd get in academia. The problem with academia is the people who study firearms are either few and far between or, you know, they're in different departments all around the country. So when you are studying something that's firearms related within academia, how do you have successful peer review when you don't have peers? Mm. And so there's this real kind of problem with an understanding scholarship where we really have to open our minds to the fact that it doesn't have to be traditional academic scholarship because there have been many cases of traditional academic scholarship you know blowing up in, in our face i mean arming america is one of the best examples of it where it i'm not even going to try to butcher his last name i always feel bad i can't pronounce it but it was this um book about i believe it was colonial america on firearms and the actual ownership of firearms and what happened was it won the Bancroft, which is one of the top awards in the history field. But then when he he was challenged on his sources, you know, all of a sudden the sources weren't available. And so in the first time of the history of the Bancroft, it was rescinded. And so you can't say that just because it goes through the PhD peer review system, that it's going to be quality because it's difficult to access the information. And just like this amazing firearms research that can happen on the non-traditional side, you know, we're struggling to figure out how we can make sure to vet that so you don't get FUD lore, you know, kind of as we call it. And so it's, I'm hoping the research center will be able to find a way to join the two in order to, you know, acknowledge that there's different levels of understanding and then help correct some of those uh, misconceptions on both sides.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, right? Because uh, there can be a lot of, it seems to me as an outsider, (laughs) someone who doesn't have uh, an advanced degree in uh, you know firearms history, that there can be and or just an advanced degree generally in a lot of fields there can be a lot of gatekeeping that goes on, um, with the implication being that if you don't have the right credentials, then the work you do can't possibly be of value. When really the focus should be on the actual work itself and whether or not it stands on its own, not whether the person who wrote it has uh, you know a, a, a good resume. Right, like yeah, certainly that can um, be a huge problem, uh, yeah. and and uh, you know I think somebody who has done work like you in the museum space and has been hands on with a lot of actual firearms that are a part of uh, historical uh, tradition in America can have that uh, the sort of insight that a professor. Uh, who has a PhD in American history uh, might not have, like, the, there's pros and cons to each approach. You know, Ian McCollum's work is, is another example of this. Like, he does some really great historical work despite not being a trained, um, you know, uh, academic historian because he, he actually is, goes and know, handles.
1: And the ability to go into so many of these collections that a lot right. of people don't. And it's it's wonderful and it's an amazing resource. I mean, he came to Cody all the time, found out stuff about our collections that we didn't know. You know, and recently there have been criticisms of my work because I don't have a PhD right. or I don't have, you know, 20 peer-reviewed articles. Well, you know, that's because I spent 10 years building, you know, rebuilding one of the largest firearms museums in the country. And that does give me a lot of experience that I'm finding really disappointingly is getting dismissed, you know, Mm -hmm. in order to build the museum and write the museum, I had to do the research. And in order to put it in the museum, I had to have it vetted, you know, so that is not necessarily a peer reviewed article in the Journal of Technology and Culture. But that is a peer reviewed program and system to get a museum built that then, you know, contributes to the education of the public. And so it's, it's disappointing to see that those levels of different kind of the idea of scholarship are getting dismissed um, as, you know, you don't have a PhD, therefore you don't know what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. or, you know, because you do look at non-academic sources, then those sources are inherently wrong. You know, it's just, I'm hoping that the research center can kind of help shed light on the importance of having both of us yeah. or the both types of scholarship right. so that we can just have the best information as possible because The cool thing about this, and I know sometimes I sound like a broken record, and I feel like half the time people don't believe me, but I'm genuine in this. It's not our job to tell you what to think about firearms. It's our job to get as much scholarship out there as possible so people can make their own decisions. And so I'm happy to see a lot more scholarship popping up, especially in the post-Bruin kind of world, because all it does is allow us to have a, a greater pool of information to for decision makers to figure out what is constitutional, what is not constitutional, and then also just ideas for how we can contribute to a productive, part of the gun debate, but then also how to reduce violence, how to reduce death by suicide. You know, having all that information is so helpful. You know, we shouldn't be tearing it down just for the sake of tearing it down. We should be trying to build the base so that people who their jobs are to make the decisions now have an amazing place to pull to pull from in order to make those calls.
0: Right. Because that's one of the other criticisms that you've had to deal with since opening the center is uh, uh, the neutrality, I guess, of what you're trying to do, right? There's been complaints about the funding of the center. Uh, you know, there've been donations from gun companies, how, you know, that, that people have used to try and say, the center is not uh, a valuable source of information or is not going to be. they tried to sort of cut you off before it begins by pointing to the funding sources as a reason not to value your work. How do you respond to that?
1: What's interesting is that when we first got approved as a formal research center within the University of Wyoming, what was interesting was we didn't have, you know, a lot of money, but we also didn't have money from, you know, the firearms industry, from gun companies. Um, so it's interesting because we didn't, it's not like we started out that way. Um, yes, we have donations from firearms companies. I come from the museum world, um, the nonprofit world. And one of the most in, you know, important things to me when we were building Cody, because we did take money from gun companies, is donors don't dictate content. So yeah. if you is believe there, in the mission-
0: is there a- any agreement between your uh the center and donors about what you're going to produce
1: um honestly no uh not to some extent you know we do have uh, some areas where a donor is contributing to uh the development of the website but uh-huh. he has no idea what the content of that website right. is he doesn't he's not involved which in is the process. key
0: the key yes bit, right?
1: oh A hundred percent. If you look at, you know, gift agreements, they're not saying, you know, and now we have to tell X, Y, Z story. And I've always, I mean, at Cody, it was the same thing. Um, If a donor wanted to have that kind of control, we didn't work with that donor. We didn't take that money. Um, And so to think about it too, another component of the research center, which I haven't mentioned is to, uh, you know, help create lawyers that may work for, you know, gun companies or on the other side of that. And so there is, you know, an interest in that side of that small side of our research center. So there are different reasons um, and different purposes of the research center. And at the same time, I mean, other, comp- you know, other research centers, other institutions take money from, you know, gun control organizations. Right. Um, and actually, you know, we've taken some industry money, but as of right now, you know, we haven't um, taken any money from gun rights organizations. In fact, We've had challenges from, you know, gun people um, to the, you know, to the creation of the center. I mean, within two days. There's been,
0: what, an effort to have, I guess, government oversight of what you produce at the center. There's a bill. In yeah. The legislature to that end.
1: It's it's not there anymore. Uh, it's it's you know we we were able to kill that bill. But yeah, I mean, two days after we ran our press release in January, we found out that there was a bill proposed to impose an oversight committee onto the work the research center was doing, mm-hmm. and. I mean, that was a 100% no for George and I. And we made it very clear if this were to happen, well, one thing is that we could jeopardize our bar accreditation um, because it, research centers within College of Laws have to be independent. But on the other side, from an ethical perspective, George and I were ready to, to be done. We said, if this happens, we're not moving forward with the research center. And that really is unfortunate because we put so much work into it. But, you know, I refuse to be part of a center that would, you know, impose that level of control, that someone would impose that level of control on us. Um, So we're fortunate that we were able to work, you know, through it all and it did not get implemented. But I mean, it's just a great illustration of the fact that, you know, people are perceiving that we're, you know, this gun industry controlled organization when the gun, some gun people fought to have us shut down before we even got started or have us controlled before we even got started. So clearly, you know, we're not doing everything, you know, on that side either. And I think that's actually kind of great that we're, you know, if you're making everybody mad, you're probably working your way as much to the middle as you can. But yeah, it's been, I was surprised to see that the biggest challenge to our research center was from the gun side uh, and not the uh, gun control side.
0: Yes, it's certainly interesting. And and then going back to the point about... uh, other research centers that exist on this issue, certainly they they also take funding from uh, groups with points of view. Uh, you know, for instance, the John Hopkins Center for Prevention of Gun Violence is literally named after Michael Bloomberg, who is the most prominent gun control uh, donor in the country. The, the and, uh, and, you know, Duke has, who, who you work with, um, you know, I would say that, that we've had members of Duke on, on the uh, Duke's Firearms Center on the show. Uh, We've, I quote them. I think they're serious people. Uh, They engage with the law, gun laws seriously. And, and, but, you know, uh, it's fairly clear that they have a certain point of view on things. I don't know that they've ever, I don't know how often their writing uh, indicates that a gun law is not constitutional, (laughs) just to be honest about what that, what Duke produces in this area, it's serious, it's serious um, uh, academic work, but it's, you know, it, it certainly leans to one side um, in their perspective, and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I don't think personally. I think that's that's perfectly fine as long as you're you're, uh, you know, being upfront and your your arguments are, and your work is is done in a diligent manner. That's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, is that. How do you see the uh, University of Wyoming Center? Is it in the same light or am I off base in in looking at it uh, similarly to how I look at Duke?
1: Well, I think, obviously, um, different scholars are going to look at the same information and have different opinions, and mm-hmm. that, you know, we hope will be the case within the research center, uh, you know, and those different opinions can be happening within our own research center. You know, it doesn't have to be just, you know, one side or the mm-hmm. other, or, you know, we're all going to be one way. And so we're hoping that when we start to be able to develop more fellows, uh, more researchers within it, that there will be kind of that internal debate within our organization as well. Um, I think that that's incredibly important. I think the one thing that I always um, would get frustrated with the gun side um, is that when I would start to talk about history, then I would hear often, I would almost always get cut off. And the people would be like, see, yeah, facts are facts. And you can't argue with facts. And I'm like, well, actually, there's an entire field of study that that's all we do, you know. And so it's the acknowledgement that we can all look at the same material and have very different conclusions about what that means. That is so important that I don't think everybody, you know, kind of in a in a public capacity quite understands. Um, so for us, I mean, we want to cultivate it as much as possible. We're not going to just have scholars that come from one perspective as we start to develop, you know, the researcher component of what we do. Um, but at the same time, I mean, if we're pushing donors don't dictate content, I mean, you have to take people at their word, you know, around the country and, you know, a- a- and make your conclusions individually uh, based on that. But I'm hoping to have, you know, as much. Diversity of thought within our center as we grow as possible. Maybe that doesn't make me super popular, and, <laughs> <laughs> but that's at least you know important to me and always has been important to me, despite what people you know project onto onto my belief systems. But okay. what people don't realize is, while well, one side, uh, while well, the pro gun control side right now is saying how you know, in, insanely biased I am towards guns, they don't realize that I have been called all kinds of names on the other side. I mean, the Cody Museum, we've been called Bolsheviks, you know, and like <laughs> I said earlier, there are gun people that won't go into the museum because they believe that we are, you know, we have a woke anti-gun agenda. So, you know, what people aren't seeing is that, you know, the middle, we all work great with, right? But yeah. sometimes the extreme they just take one thing in your life and then they, you know, turn it, Turn it around on
0: you. Yeah, I think I've certainly experienced some of that myself as uh, someone who who founded a publication dedicated to sober, serious conversations about guns and is a CNN contributor, but but also a firearms instructor who likes to build AR-15s in his spare time. Um, so I understand where you're coming from on that point for sure. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit more about Cody and your your time in the museum world and some of the fun things that you've experienced there. What was uh, maybe some of the most interesting uh, guns that you've come across in your time as a curator?
1: Oh, goodness. I personally like, if you read any of my expert testimonies that are public, you know I like... You know, the, the firearms technology that's far more advanced than we assume was developed, Mm -hmm. you know, at a particular time. And so some of the most interesting pieces in Cody are ones that, you know, really predate your concept of that, that invention. Um, one of the ones that I'm going to use that Daniel use often is the Burton light machine rifle. And it's an amazing example of technology ahead of its time, but also how you know, how we drive the development of technology. And so the Burton Light Machine Rifle is a selective fire, uh, twin-top mount magazine, uh, detachable magazine firearm that takes an an interchangeable cartridge, sorry, and uh, is single-soldier portable. And it was developed, and if you are aware of the words that I am saying, uh, you will know that um, in the 1970 manual of the Defense Intelligence Agency, that is how you define an assault rifle. Um, Mm -hmm. I know I don't make friends when I say those terms, but assault rifle and assault weapon are very different terms. Uh, An assault rifle is a selective fire gun unless you're within a state law that changes it so like california state law actually has a different definition for assault rifle but the historical one are the words that i just said yeah so comes from the Sturmgewehr,
0: right the the literal assault rifle in germany yeah
1: so and and that's you know so you're talking like 1917 for the burton Mm. and you're talking the end of world war ii for the Sturmgewehr, and then moving on from that and so we're, tra- we're talking decades and we're talking a different world war. Um, so he develops uh, this guy named Frank Burton, uh, who was the son of James Burton, who's very uh, a very famous uh, designer during the um, 1800s at Harper's Ferry. Um, so legacy family. And so he's designing this gun. And obviously the hope would be to implement it um, during the war, but the war ends so it really doesn't go out of prototype you know, mode. Um, And and that's what you see a lot, like you get these really, you know, intricate inventions and then the war ends and it's like, oh, never mind. (laughs) Um, And and with earlier technology, you'd see that really advanced technology, um, even rifling in the 1400s, doesn't have a practical battlefield application. So it becomes a civilian, you know, kind of a civilian trait within a firearm, a hunting arm, a target shooting arm. And so... You know, I'm fascinated by that kind of thing. So the Burton is a great example of that. It's also very popular in the video game world. Uh, Cody is the only example, but yet nobody asked us. I think (laughs) it's Battlefield 1. Damn, I'm going to embarrass you. It's probably not the right. Uh, What's also interesting about that is that, and this is where scholarship is, you know, and it's constantly changing, is that there was history about the fact that they used incendiary rounds as well um, with the intention to to shoot down balloons. However, when you actually look at the manual and all the ammo they use, there's no evidence of that. Oh. Um, so that's been something that was debunked, although I think you can use incendiary rounds in the video game. So there's that piece of technology. There's early magazine technology from the 1600s. We have this really wonky uh, four barrel gun that gas seals together um, from the 1600s that belonged to the Earl of Meath in Scotland. Wow. Uh, so it's seeing that this is not just a linear narrative of you have a hand cannon, then you have a matchlock, then you have a wheel lock, and then you have multiple variations on a flintlock and then a percussion, you know, and, and then, and so on and so on. So at the museum, we put a timeline in that started with your, our earliest crossbow. And then went all the way up through modern day, and we actually have 3d printed guns in the museum. And, um, and that was a fascinating process. Um, so we started with the oldest. And then on the one side, it's the you know development of the firearm, you know, the the overarching linear narrative. And on the other side, it's hey, here's the same time frame, and here's all these other technologies that existed and why they were important for this part of the culture or not. Um, so that you could see the yin and yang almost of it. Um, and so it, that's probably the most significant thing for me, especially when you look at uh collection pieces, because where some of these things are commissioned or one-offs because, you know, again, it's a civilian, you know, firearm for the most part, especially over in Europe, they're one-offs. But let's think about the fact that, you know, maybe they're not always one-offs because They survived. You know, you've got how many surviving guns that were produced for a specific military contract. You know, it could be a lot. It could not be. But then you say, here's one gun that belonged to one person because he had a commission. How did it survive 400 years? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's actually, I think, is something I'm recently kind of starting to think about. You know, it's fascinating that those are what survived and why would they have survived and how did they survive? Um, And a lot of them have been passed down by collectors. You know, so the person who had it built uh, was an avid gun owner and collector and then they you know pass it down the line but that part is also interesting is you know these things that maybe weren't made in mass somehow survive for us to see them for the most part
0: that is yeah that's very fascinating i mean there's there's a lot of history to guns right it goes back such a long time and there's been so many different developments uh you know over the years and whether they catch on or when they catch on is is pretty fascinating to look at too but one of the things you mentioned is the obviously the influence of Uh, video games and presumably other media like how much during your time at cody did you see people starting to come in because of games like uh battlefield one or or any of the video games that focus on realistic firearms uh, especially historical firearms uh and even shows like you know you're right by yellowstone right so what about Yellowstone, has that driven people to come into the Cody Museum more, you know, these sort of media uh, properties or these cultural events? Do you see an impact in, in people coming to the museum because of that?
1: For sure. We actually have several sections dedicated to kind of the pop culture understanding of firearms, especially with the Western. Um, And starting with, you know, dime novels and Buffalo Bill's Wild West up through modern Westerns. Uh Danny's made a, a mission of his to put the uh, Mauser C-96 in as many displays as possible. So you do see it in the... <laughs> the Western display. Um, and it is relevant to that. Um, uh, but you do get that a lot. I mean, and what's interesting is that's a, the video game crowd is a much different crowd. And so a lot of times it's a younger crowd. Um, and they come in and they sometimes know details about firearms that I, never even knew existed um although it's not always correct right like i mentioned with the (laughs) with the burton but they come in and have this very technical you know desire and then people who come in for tv shows often want to see you know we have many guns from earlier westerns you know gary cooper firearms and they want to come and see that particular firearm that that one of their favorite celebrities held um And then we also have to do a lot of debunking within the museum of the way that they operated, how they operated, um, how they would have actually been used within that time frame. But we do see that. And we did notice in general, um, we did, you know, pre-survey work of the museum and then we did post-survey work of the museum. And we actually shifted our demographic uh, a lot to younger audiences and a much more... um, Female audience. Uh, Danny, I remember right after we opened, he's like, I saw something I'd never seen before. It was a, a couple, and the woman was dragging the man around the museum, and he was just done. And he was the guy, you know, he was the gun person, and she was just so fascinated by all that. Because we did a lot of contextual history. It wasn't just guns on a wall like the former Cody firearms Museum was. And so we saw just that change in general about the people who wanted to be in there. Uh, the the reporter from the wall street journal when he came in uh to review the museum he had actually reviewed the buffalo bill museum which is a part of the conflict or the um the complex before and in that review he also did not say some very nice things about the old firearms museum so he came out to review the new firearms museum and he is totally right like he was yeah like, I, I don't you know, judge him for those opinions at all because I felt them too. Uh, <laughs> so when he came out to the museum, the first thing he said to me, we had part of the gallery open, it was right before the, the, op- the formal opening. And he walked in and he looked at me and he goes, people are talking. <laughs> He's like, when I was here before, it was like silence. Uh, you know, he was like, eh, and everyone, it was just a bunch of dudes, staring at the cases and he's like, and no one was having a dialogue. And he's like, there are women and families in here. And he's like, and he walked around without me, you know, for a while too. And he's like, it's amazing to see the change in the conversation. And that was just like, to me, that was the most important thing that could have happened, you know, in, in what we were trying to do, which was to facilitate the dialogue. And so it was great to have someone who had been to the other museum, not liked it, and then come in and really had a lot of favorable things to say about it.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's interesting to see that the, to hear that the demographic changed like that over time. Um, you know, and especially with, the rise of, especially the way that a lot of video games implement firearms now, like, you know, historical games like uh, Battlefield 1 is actually a really good example of it because they'll they'll often try to find extremely unique guns, even one-off guns that have more advanced features like the burn you're talking about, so that they can actually put them in the game uh, and you can use what's effectively an assault rifle in a World War One video game and it's not inaccurate to the time in the sense that that gun did exist, at least. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: But, uh, you know, so they they sort of dredge up a lot of these guns that people don't know about uh, to put them in their in their game. So it's interesting to see that driving people to actually go and seek out the real history of these things, Uh, because, yeah, like they're not always used historically accurately in a video game, of course, or in a movie or a TV show. And so it's interesting to see people respond to that by going in to the museum to actually see them and and then you being able to sort of give them that extra level of information to maybe debunk some of the things that are out there and help them learn a little bit more about the history.
1: I remember um, when I did an interview for PBS NewsHour, this woman got so mad at me. I was a gun person. So we were standing in front of the polymer kind of revolution section of the timeline. um, And we were talking about, you know, the AR-15, the AR-10, and we were standing in front of several um, early AR-15s. And we weren't talking about, um, I don't think we were talking about it, but it didn't make it into it, um, selective fire AR-15s. Um, but we were, t- we were talking about the terminology, understanding you know, the the legislative definitions of quote unquote assault weapons, all of that. Right. And right. she like lost her mind on my social media and was like, how dare you stand in front of a display that has nothing to do with you know automatic fire Arms. these are semi-automatic firearms AR-15s were never you know selective fire and I was literally standing in front of the early examples people don't realize that they you know there were early examples yep. before they yep. were adopted and it were sold by you know Colt and so I was just funny because it's like it was it was funny to me because I was like I'm actually standing in front of the few examples that exist, you know, that exist of a Selectifier AR-15. And there was so much of that, like, hatred projected of, like, how could you stand in front of these things? And I'm like, and, and, you know, ironically, just ironically, (laughs) I was in front of a case where there was something that totally debunks what a lot of people associate with that early technology. And I thought that I thought that was funny. Yeah. (laughs) I I couldn't win the argument, though. She didn't want to hear it. Of
0: course. Well, you know, and that's how (laughs) you see gun politics knock up against, you know, the history of firearms, right? Because it's an important distinction now for people to make that the AR-15 as it exists in mass production is a semi-automatic rifle because, um, a lot of people think it is fully automatic that that your average AR-15 and they don't understand that. And so people can get, uh, stuck in, they know the fact that the AR-15 you can go out and buy today is going to be semi-automatic only, but that doesn't mean there never existed any select fire
1: AR-15s. Yeah. Well, and I think if I'm remembering correctly, in the Oregon measure uh, 114, there's a there's a sentence about a semi-automatic, and I think they use the term assault rifle. Um, and if right, I remember correctly, they don't have a modified, they have, they don't have the modified definition like in California. Um, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think they do. And so it was just one of those moments too, on the other side where, you know, the terminology is inter changed inaccurately and, oh, yeah. and ultimately it much more you know, often on that side yeah I say. but i remember seeing that and, and you know having it really be like to, so to me you know your wording and your terminology is so important um and you know i i just want people to be able to you know have the best understanding of the terms and that was an example on the other side of yeah. you know yeah. or, I, I don't know if it's an oxymoron uh since you know assault rifle is selective fire and they had the semi-automatic and the miss uh, perception that you know of what they were trying to say right. and it's just it's it's both sides of it but it's it's really fascinating how how difficult it can be to understand that and how easy it is to you know make a mistake in general
0: right and and how much the work that you do as a museum curator as a uh, historian is inherently political right it, it, the or it, it's going to inherently become political I guess is is what I mean by that like
1: I hope, you can't avoid just, it. I try, you know, I hate politics. So, uh, but yeah, of course when you are writing an expert testimony, um you know, it's not like uh, you know, you do your best to um just provide the history um to to the best of your knowledge. Um you know, I don't personally and professionally make a stance on whether or not you should do this or not, but just, you asked me to do a history on this and here's my interpretation on that history. Um, but when you're hired by you're you know, when you're hired, you're hired by a side, you can't just not be hired by a side. And so when you're hired, um, and you're on the plaintiff's side or the defense's side, you know, there's automatically, even if you're not, you know, your writing doesn't have it, there's an, you know, a projection uh you know a perception that because you're on a specific side that therefore you know you then stand for x y and z um so you you know even though you don't necessarily you know take a side professionally you know you are on a side because that's who hired you and but i think sure. it's really important to or just make that's sure- how the
0: work works you know that's how your uh conclusions come out in in the proceeding because it's going to be especially in a post-Bruin situation where historical uh, gun laws and and historical development of firearms matter so much to whether or not, uh, you know, a gun law is constitutional, whatever you determine in looking at the history of the given period of firearms development is going to be used in a political way, whether you intend it to or not.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, it's... It's an important thing that I've kind of started really thinking about, um, in my own profession, which is, uh, moving forward, you know, are there better ways to help educate? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how, how can we, you know, better educate everyone and make And earlier in my career, this wasn't necessarily the case. It wasn't so volatile. It wasn't so personal, um, the, the perceptions and what's projected. Um, so early on, you know, it was, everybody would come and ask me and talk to me. Um, and that's still the case in a lot of respects, but you know, I just, I'm trying to kind of in my brain be, how is the, how can I help the most? Um, Mm because all I want is to facilitate the dialogue and, and I haven't come up with that necessarily, necessarily the answer yet, but I, you know, how can you help the most? Um, because
0: Hopefully if the Firearms Center, volatile. yeah, I mean, hopefully you'll be able to to find better ways to do that through the work of of the Firearms Center. And, and I think we're going to look forward to following that work um, as, as things move on here and perhaps have you back on the show again down the line to talk about, you know, how it's developed over time and, and uh, you know, what you guys are, are doing once things are moving at, at, more at peace, right? With the, you want to get things up and running and then perhaps come back on the show and, and talk a little bit more about some of the successes and failures and some of the ways that things worked out um, and how how uh, effective they've been. So uh, yeah, we'll have to have you back on again. But in the meantime, where can people go and find out more about the Firearms Research Center uh, if they want to or more about your writing uh, or your work personally?
1: So if you want to see more about the Firearms Research Center, especially as we're going to be uploading a lot of content, uh, we're firearmsresearchcenter.org. And then on Instagram and Facebook, we're just at firearms research. So you can check us out there. Um, I'm not going to lie. I don't remember the handle for Twitter (laughs) (laughs) because at firearms research was taken. Uh, So just Google it. And uh, for me, if you want to see any of the work that I'm doing, because my work is incredibly diverse, everything from I just wrote a ghost tour (laughs) and wrote about dark tourism over to the firearms history side of things. I'm at History and Heels on Instagram. And I am at Official Ashley Lubinsky. Have fun spelling that on Facebook.
0: There's a silent... There's a silent letter in there. I'm not going to tell people what it is, but there's a silent letter in that last name.
1: People like Uh, to add like two or three other letters into it
0: too. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, we appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and talk to us about the new center. And we look forward to hearing from you again in the future.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun.
0: All right. It's time for our news update segment with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. How are you doing this week, Jake? I'm doing pretty good, Steve. How are you? I'm doing all right. I was uh, at Columbia University this uh, past Wednesday, speaking to a class there. So that was it's pretty exciting. My first trip up to New York City, and oh my gosh, since since uh, like high school, I guess. And then before that, I we did the whole like Alice Island, uh, Liberty Statue of Liberty trip when I was in middle school. Sometime that was before 9/11, actually. But uh, yeah, I. It took the train up a cella for the first that was the first time thing a lot of firsts on this trip for me had had the new york pizza and bagels which
2: were both. i was gonna ask if you got the food while you were there yeah both worth worth uh
0: worth the effort to go and get uh, definitely recommend if anytime you're up in in new york city if you ever make it up there the food is 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 pretty is pretty solid i liked it a lot Um, But yeah, I spoke to a class at Columbia University and and we had a great great conversation, get back and forth as a public health class. So they brought me in to talk about the the gun rights movement and sort of the political realities surrounding um, public health efforts to reduce gun deaths. So uh, I I thought it went really well. That's good Uh, to hear at a college these days. Yeah, you know, it was very respectful back and forth. You know, the, the students were all, um, you know, interested in hearing from me and, and having a discussion. Uh, so, I, you know, I always enjoy that atmosphere anytime uh, I'm invited anywhere to speak. So that's, that's usually my philosophy. I'll just go talk to people who want to talk to me. You know, I don't, I don't mind what their views are one way or the other uh, on the topic as long as they're respectful and interested in an open dialogue, you know, and that's, uh, that's what I had. And that th- I hope they learned a lot. Some of the, the students there from uh, the conversation and, and, uh, you know, I'd love to do it again. I've done it before at other schools, Carnegie Mellon, uh, University of Michigan. So always open to those sorts of speaking engagements, whenever they can fit into the schedule. Um, and so, yeah, I had a great time, but, but yeah, you, I don't, you, you're actually going shooting this weekend, aren't you?
2: Uh, that's right. Yeah. I'm, uh, taking a friend who just got his first handgun. Uh, so he's pretty excited to get out there and, and to try it out. And he asked me to come along with him. So we're going to oh, go, nice. uh, you know, spend a day at the range, uh, I believe tomorrow on Saturday.
0: That's awesome. New shooter, uh, new shooter time. That that's always fun. You know, if you can help people learn the ropes, so to speak, uh, make sure they're following the safety rules and doing all these right. things, but yeah, but yeah, it's always, it's always good to go with, with new shooters. I always find that to be a lot of fun, uh, cause they're, they're usually very eager to learn and, uh, they want to get better and, and improve themselves and, and make themselves a better shot. So, uh, good luck. I think, the I think that sounds like a fantastic thing. I got I have some friends who want to do uh, concealed carry courses here in the, the DMV area. So I have to, I have to go schedule some of those soon as well. Um, and then I have uh, the Homes for Our Troops charity shoots. I stopped two of those to schedule this year uh, for the last couple of charity auctions that we've done. So uh, it's going to be a busy, busy spring and summer and fall, I think, for shooting. I'm also trying say, to it's do some, be a lot of shooting. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get into some competitive shooting, maybe a little bit as well. I know there's a member who lives in the in Virginia that uh, is trying to help me get involved in some of the the local competitive shooting events just so I can, uh, you know, get out and do that a little more often. I've done it a couple of times before, but it's it's a lot of fun. I'd like to learn a little more of that. Plus it's good skills, you know, build, skill building competition. So, uh, yeah, definitely got to get back in in the on the horse with that kind of stuff. Uh, so hoping to do a sig- significant amount of actual shooting uh, coming up here, because uh, that's always, always less than I'd like to be able to do it. You know what I mean? Right. But we've you've got a big story this week uh, that we're going to be talking about here. Uh, the credit card companies, the big credit card companies, they made a major decision. What exactly did they do?
2: Yeah. So uh, Bloomberg actually broke the news uh, Thursday the 9th, as of this recording, um, that Visa and MasterCard, uh, according to internal sources, said that. The MCC code, uh, the merchant category code that everyone is talking about for, quote-unquote, tracking gun sales, which we'll get into a little bit later why that's a bit of a misnomer. But anyway, they were originally going to go forward with this code. They faced a bunch of backlash, a lot of political backlash, backlash from gun rights advocates, and now are no longer going to – they're pausing, at least, the implementation of those codes. And shortly after that announcement Oh, sorry. Go well, ahead.
0: so you uh, you actually, I uh, Bloomberg broke this story, but you actually talked directly with Visa and Discovery, right? About about their decision not to go forward with this.
2: That's right. Yeah. So Visa, I uh, reached out to Visa just to kind of corroborate Bloomberg's reporting, and they told me that it was in the face of a bunch of impending legislation through you know various states uh, across the country. I believe there's five or six, um, mostly Republican-led states that are either uh, introducing legislation to outright ban the use of these special gun store codes or severely disincentivize their use and visa basically said you know in the face of all this uncertainty it's created a lot of chaos for our legal department so we're just going to pause the code and see what happens basically and then that that was also echoed by the other companies as well
0: Hmm. yeah pretty big news because this was a major concern for gun owners and gun rights advocates alike throughout the country, um, you know, mainly, I think, because of the impetus behind this change, right? So we can talk a little bit about what it actually does. But the concern was that it'll track gun sales, and even perhaps deny gun sales, or have people reported to the police,
2: right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, a lot of people thought that this would essentially be like a de facto registry, um, if it was implemented in the way that a lot of its proponents, frankly, thought that it w- could be used. Um, so, you know, they're not that far off in terms of what the proponents of this move think it's right. going to do by, by that's, jumping to the that conclusion. How this,
0: that's how this came about, right? There was a, or really, there was a New York Times columnist who suggested this idea of using merchant category codes, which already exist, right? There's hundreds of them that these companies use to put different retailers in different categories. This is how, uh, you know, you get rewards cards, right? So airlines have a certain merchant category code. And so if you spend money at an airline, that's how your credit card can know that you um, qualify for the points that they're giving for that uh, recommendation. But, The idea behind this wasn't to create, you know, gun buying rewards cards. It was to track gun sales because uh, some mass shooters had used credit cards to purchase uh, guns and ammunition in the lead up to their attacks. So the idea was, well, if we can track these sales and we can identify suspicious patterns of buying, then those those. Consumers can be reported to the police in the same way that uh, you know, for instance, there's uh, terrorism or, or fraud, especially fraud uh, monitoring uh, works in this way where they track suspicious patterns of buying and then a, a, a report is filed with the you know appropriate authorities to try and investigate this. So that the idea was to try and copy that system, and the first step was to implement these merchant category codes, uh, uh, amalgamated bank, which is a big uh, union bank. It's a sort of an activist bank. A lot of the top democratic officials use that bank for their, for their banking. And it's often trying to implement financial reforms in line with what uh, liberal activists want. And so they were the ones who proposed this change at the international body that governs these category codes and, uh, you know, it, it sort of went through initially it was ignored and then late last year it went, it went through and caused a lot of uproar because there was initially opposition from Visa and MasterCard and Discover and American Express because the industry doesn't want the codes right the the gun industry doesn't want a specialized code because I think explicitly because of the the people who do want the code and what they want to do with it right
2: yeah, no that's right, and as you said for you know the last few years it seems a lot of these banks and credit cards have sort of resisted this change they've it's it's sort of mirrors a lot of the same trends that you've seen perhaps in other big industries that have as of late pivoted to more, you know, whether you want to call it ESG or more socially conscious policies, Where for a while they say, Oh, we don't want to dip our toes into this. This is too political. And then suddenly just out of nowhere, they say, okay, fine. We'll, you know, we'll implement your, your, your pet project or your, your social cause and creates a huge uproar. And as you said, the industry was not happy. Um, red States, a lot of Republican figures weren't happy with this and it just creates a big fight and a big blow up. Um, but it, it, at least in this case it seems like that backlash actually you know paid some dividends here
0: yeah it certainly seems like the efforts from republican lawmakers in places like florida and texas to push back on this effort to use legislation to discourage it has actually worked uh, i think that's that's one of the big takeaways i mean now to be fair i suppose they only said that they've paused this plan right they haven't abandoned it Um, it does seem odd, right. For a financial institution to put a merchant code on an industry that doesn't want the merchant code. You know, the only reason you would do that is because the, the activists on the other side do want the code, right? Like, those are the only people who want the code are the ones who want to try and use it to track people. Now we should note, right, that what the activists want to use this code for and what it can actually do are two different things at this point,
2: right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, the MCC doesn't track, you know, granular data It doesn't tell you what was purchased at a particular store uh, It doesn't tell you in what quantity something was purchased, it just uh, is a code assigned to a particular retailer that in this case may sell guns as part of its business. So for example, like a Cabela's or something would be flagged by this code, even if you went there to buy, I don't know, you know, camping equipment or something. So it's, it's not exactly the most, uh, granular yeah, look at be. what people are, are, are doing.
0: Right. There We don't know exactly how that was all going to shake out in terms of like large retailers that also sell guns alongside other sporting goods. But even in, even in retailers that are just literally gun stores, there's a lot of things you can buy from a gun store that aren't guns. Right. 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 And so. All the code will t- would tell uh, the credit card company is that you bought something from a retailer that sells guns. So you know you can spend five thousand because this and this is where a lot of the basic concept that the New York Times columnists came up with and that that a lot of gun control activists have run with. Sort of falls apart because the idea is, well, if you spell, spend $5,000 at, uh, you know, a gun store, maybe you're, maybe that's suspicious and should be investigated. I mean, first off, like, I think trying to find a needle in a haystack in terms of somebody who's likely to, to like, what what pattern is there for mass shooters? You look at some of the examples they gave, and it's really some of these guys just bought a couple of guns and uh, you know a couple hundred or even a couple thousand rounds of ammunition. That is not an uncommon thing to do if you're a gun owner. You know, right. I mean, like it's not some suspicious red flag. A lot of people buy a couple of guns and a couple thousand rounds of ammunition and 99.9999999% of them don't turn into mass shooters, if that makes sense. Uh, and in addition to that, <clears throat> just spending $5,000 at a gun store for instance if you just pick a number you know a relatively large number. doesn't even mean you've bought any guns you could be buying a gun safe or or two and so just having this ability to see how for these credit card companies to see how much money you spent at a category of retailer is is generally not going to be enough information to create a profile. Plus, the, it's sort of the base level concept of creating a profile for mass shooters doesn't work either. As the we talked about a while back with the United States uh, Secret Service did their report on, on mass shooters and said there is no profile. That's right. not how this works. So there's a lot of problems with the basic concept. And then what they got is really a, only a half measure to what they were trying to get to because in order for it to work the way they even claim that it should work or could work you'd have to allow the credit card companies to see into the basket they call it to see exactly what you're buying when you go to the to the gun store because if you're just buying a gun safe that's different from buying two you know $2000 guns or or 10 uh, you know, or 20, you know, $100 guns or whatever. And so it, it really was a half-baked concept to begin with. One that was only supported by people who aren't retailers. Right. And so it's kind of a weird, it was a weird uh, um it, you know consideration for these companies to begin with so i'm not really surprised that they eventually came around to not wanting to do this because it doesn't do what activists say it would do and it makes everyone else involved upset so you know not not shocked that they've decided to go back on it uh but it, you know they were going to go through with it right after that after the governing body said they were implementing it all these card companies said they would they would go forward and now they're saying they're not.
2: That's right. Yeah. And, and Discover, in fact, even was going to implement its code as early as mm-hmm. next month in April. And yep. so they actually were the only ones that actually had a code ready to go. And even they said, you know what? This isn't worth the trouble. We're pausing and we're going to join all these other companies because this is just getting out of hand.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, American Express will be an interesting one to watch, too, because American Express is different from the other credit card companies in that they don't just provide the network. Uh, they also provide the, basically the banking side of things. So they are the bank in addition to being the credit card company. So they can see what you're buying, like your bank can see. So they know what's, what's in your cart. Now, you know, they don't really need an MCC code to, uh, to do that because your bank can already see what you buy, right? They know what you're, where you're buying from and what you're buying. Uh, the credit card company, the processor doesn't know this, but your bank does. And a- American Express is a combination of those two things. And so what they decide to do will be a little more interesting as well, I think. Uh, but we'll have to keep an eye on this whole situation. I mean, are they going to just pause it or are they going to give up on entirely? That's a, that's another big question.
2: Yeah, that is the key, I think.
0: Yeah. But uh, we will absolutely keep an eye on that. and. I hope you have fun this weekend, taking your friend out to shoot for the first time. I think that sounds fantastic. Uh, But for now, that's all we have for you. If you wanna help support our reporting here at The Reload, you can head on over to thereload.com. You can sign up for our free newsletter or you can purchase a membership. That's how we fund our reporting. That's how we are able to do this. That's how we're able to bring sober, serious reporting to you on a weekly, really daily basis. And you can also, if you're not ready to purchase a membership, support us by rating this podcast on whatever app you're listening to it on or going and liking it on YouTube, leaving a comment, leaving a review, sharing it with your friends. All of that helps us out, uh, and we greatly appreciate it. So please, please, please (laughs) go ahead and do those things, uh, and we will be back with you again next week.